Monday, April 4th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, Ukraine and Western nations accuse Russian forces of carrying out a, quote, massacre, unquote, in the town of Busha. Ukraine's defense minister on Sunday accused Russian forces of an array of atrocities. Alexei Reznikov said the crimes came to light after Ukrainian forces moved into cities and towns after the invaders withdrew. The United Nations Refugee Agency says humanitarian needs are increasing and spreading throughout Ukraine. The World Food Program says food is dwindling and becoming harder to get in Ukraine. Despite the security risks, WFP says it has managed to provide food to one million people. And Pakistan's Prime Minister calls for fresh elections after surviving an opposition bid to oust him. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Ukraine on Sunday accused Russian forces of carrying out a, quote, massacre, unquote, in the town of Busha, while Western nations reacted to images of dead bodies there with calls for new sanctions against Moscow. Zachary Goldman of Reuters reports. Ukraine's defense minister on Sunday accused Russian forces of an array of atrocities. Alexei Reznikov said the crimes came to light after Ukrainian forces moved into cities and towns after the invaders withdrew. This is not a special operation. These are not police actions. These are ordinary racists, fascists, and inhumane who simply committed crimes against civilians. Raped, killed, shot them in the back of the head. The whole world needs to know about this. These images, taken by Reuters witnesses in Bucha, show what appear to be victims in a mass grave and bodies lying in the streets. Bucha lies 23 miles northwest of the capital, Kiev, an area Ukrainian troops said they recaptured on Saturday. Bucha's mayor, Anatoly Fedoruk, said on Sunday that 300 residents had been killed during a month-long occupation by the Russian army. Reuters could not immediately verify this. Russia's defense ministry denied the Ukrainian allegations, saying footage and photographs showing dead bodies in Bucha were, quote, yet another provocation by Kiev. It said Russian military units had left Bucha on March 30th and that civilians had been free to move around the town or evacuate while it was under Russian control. But the reports and images of dead civilians brought outraged pro-Ukrainian demonstrators to the streets of Berlin on Sunday. And that sentiment echoed across Western capitals. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken described images of dead bodies there as, quote, a punch in the gut. And the foreign ministers of Germany, France, and Britain, along with the European Union's foreign policy chief, expressed outrage over the reports from Bucha. Reznikov vowed to document the alleged atrocities and said Ukraine would weigh bringing charges in the International Criminal Court. There is a whole list. These are war crimes. These are crimes against humanity. The images of corpses in civilian clothes left behind by departing Russian troops has prompted calls from officials in Ukraine and Europe for tougher sanctions on Moscow. That's Zachary Goldman of Reuters. United Nations agencies say humanitarian needs are increasing and spreading throughout Ukraine as the war there intensifies and expands to more areas of the country. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The World Food Program says food is dwindling and becoming harder to get in Ukraine. Despite the security risks, WFP says it has managed to provide food to one million people since Russian military forces invaded Ukraine February 24th. Speaking from the western city of Lviv, WFP spokesman Thompson Fury says it is difficult to assess the extent of damage to the country or the needs of a fast-moving population during a volatile security situation. 
I have just returned from a voucher distribution center in Lviv, and people are stretched. Uh, they are running out of options. Um, with each day, it is taking the toll on them. Our plan as the World Food Program is to support more and more people. Fury says the WFP aims to provide food and cash assistance to more than 3 million people inside Ukraine, as well as 300,000 people who have fled to neighboring countries. However, one of the biggest challenges facing WFP, he says, is finding enough partners to distribute the food aid in besieged places. He says WFP is trying to enlist the help of non-governmental and civil society organizations and even churches in this effort. In areas that are indirectly affected by the war and where food is still available and retail shops are operating normally, we continue to roll out cash and vouchers as a means of support. Uh, where possible as well, WSP will purchase food from within Ukraine so that we also inject money into the economy to support people who have been displaced. United Nations and international agencies say the conflict in Ukraine is having a profound impact on the world's food supply. The Food and Agriculture Organization says Russia and Ukraine account for nearly 30% of the global wheat trade, with at least 50 countries dependent on imports from these countries. The FAO says global hunger will increase as Russian and Ukrainian wheat exports decrease and food prices spiral to new heights. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. The International Committee of the Red Cross says gains in maternal and child health in Afghanistan risks being lost if the international community does not intervene and support the country's flailing public infrastructure. Afghanistan's high maternal mortality rate makes specialized services in ICRC-supported hospitals even more important for pregnant women and newborns. The ICRC's Anita Dallard tells VOA's Carol Van Dam the country's deepening economic crisis is as a result of the banking and liquidity crisis once funds were frozen. Thousands of public sector workers, including in the health system, have gone without salaries for many, many months, and, and that was before September also. Or they've only been paid intermittently. And so this means that doctors and nurses across the country have continued to come to work regardless of not being paid. There weren't funds for running costs of the hospitals, for fuel for ambulances, for, for food for patients and so on. Um, the International Committee of the Red Cross has stepped in uh, in November to launch a, an initiative to support 18 hospitals at that time and we've since scaled up to include 33 hospitals and that includes the maternal health hospitals as well uh, to, to provide the financial support and the technical support to make sure that those facilities can continue to provide care. Many people have a hard time giving money to Afghanistan and I know that the ICRC is saying that they have to have this to do their work in these strained hospitals. So what do you say to those people who have a hard time giving money when it's being run by the Taliban in Afghanistan right now? Well, these hospitals are, you know, we are supporting them financially and we work with authorities because we have to to, to get things done. And so I would say that over the, the past months, we've seen the impact that the, the lack of investment in Afghanistan has caused. Um, Afghanistan for, for decades now has relied on international assistance and the abrupt end to that assistance or freeze on that assistance has been really, really a huge strain in, in many sectors. And so we're really calling on the international community 
to invest to support humanitarian organisations like our own to ensure that Afghans have continued access to care. Humanitarian organisations cannot replace, though, a functioning public sector. So what exactly are you asking for from the international community? Well, we have two calls, and one of them is primarily that we're asking them to support our work. We've uh, extended our budget appeal for another 53 um, million Swiss francs, and that brings the total budget that we would be working with in Afghanistan to to almost 200,000 Swiss francs in 2022. And then we are looking to the international community to come up with a solution to ensure that investment can continue. And that is, of course, up to the international community to work out and to negotiate. Um, But we are saying that it really has to happen so that the public infrastructure can continue. That's Anita Dalad, ICRC spokesperson in Bangkok, speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Dam. Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan survived a move to oust him on Sunday. He received a reprieve when the Deputy Speaker of Parliament blocked a no-confidence motion as unconstitutional. Khan's fate was not immediately clear, leading to fresh political instability in the nuclear-armed country of 220 million people. The opposition has petitioned the country's Supreme Court to challenge the action and blames Khan for failing to revive the economy and crack down on corruption. Khan has said without citing evidence that the move to oust him was orchestrated by the United States, a claim Washington denies. He has advised the country's president to dissolve parliament and called on the nation to prepare for fresh elections. For more, I spoke with VOS Ayaz Gal on why the Prime Minister Khan is pushing for fresh elections. Over the last one month, ever since this no-confidence vote had been submitted against him in the National Assembly, he has been out giving speeches, addressing public rallies, and trying to tell his voters and supporters that he is being ousted from office, not by the opposition parties here, but at the behest of the United States, as he continuously been alleging, he has built up quite a momentum and support within the masses. And obviously, he held a couple of huge rallies, like unprecedented rallies in the history of Pakistan in recent days. So maybe that has given him this confidence that not only there's a way to escape this vote of no confidence, but also calling fresh elections, hoping that this support that he has been able to generate at this anti-America sentiment will bring him back to power. With all the economic problems, political problems, security problems, What is the mood of the country? Is the country in the mood for fresh elections? It was until this vote of no confidence was submitted in the in the parliament against the prime minister. He was under severe criticism from all sides for unprecedented inflation in the country, obviously stemming from bad economic policies of the past. And plus this over the last two years, the outbreak of pandemic, you know, Pakistan's economy has received a serious hit. So this has led to increase in prices of uh, daily commodities. So the government was really under fire and there were demands and opposition was using that sentiment of the public to criticize prime minister and was asking him to step down. There is a reversal now in those sentiments and people uh, apparently are in favor of new elections because it seems that they were also fed up because Prime Minister Imran Khan had a very thin majority in parliament and his government was really not able to pass any effective legislation or take decisions with authority in the parliament. So uh, there was sort of a stalemate in terms of the legislative business in parliament and that was because prime minister 
was having a thin majority and was relying on coalition partners and coalition partners were having their own demands so this political mess that analyst uh, described here had created a situation where the public was fed up was of the view that maybe a government with proper good authority or good majority in the parliament will help resolve their problems talking about the opposition they are obviously not waiting for fresh elections and they are threatening to do other things to get the prime minister out of office what are their options since this monday morning after what the speaker of the house basically declared the no confidence motion against prime minister as illegal and constitutional there were serious speculations in islamabad that maybe because of this political turmoil the pakistani military will intervene and take over control of the country those were speculations but the military came out and dismissed those speculations saying they have nothing to do with this political turmoil and they will let the political forces in the country to resolve this problem and then one of the opposition parties uh, quickly uh, submitted a petition in the supreme court and asking for the supreme court to urgently take up this issue today and decide claiming that whatever happened inside the parliament today was illegal what we saw later in the evening that the supreme court chief justice actually took up the case and there was a brief hearing and in that hearing the supreme court said that they have issued notices to different federal governments to the president to the prime minister and monday morning there will be now a formal hearing of the case and it is being hoped that once the supreme court determines whether the actions inside the parliament by the speaker and by later on by the prime minister imran khan whether the supreme court ruling supports that or not it is now all eyes are fixed on the supreme court that's viewers ayas gao speaking with me from islamabad a senior un official warns south sudan is facing its worst humanitarian crisis since the country became independent in july 2011 Again, this is Line Reports of VOA from Geneva. The celebrations that greeted that joyful event and the hopes that were raised for a peaceful, more prosperous future had been dashed. More than a decade after South Sudan gained its independence, the country remains riven in conflict, crushed by multiple natural and man-made disasters, and unable to feed its population. UN humanitarian coordinator for South Sudan, Sarah Besolo Nianti, says the number of people struggling to eke out a living keeps rising. year after year she says year after year more people are plunged into extreme poverty and desperation she says the appalling situation cannot go on something must change as much as we need 1.7 billion this year for humanitarian needs we also need funding for development and for peace building ensuring social cohesion and resilience humanitarian aid will not solve the problems of the people of south sudan We need to make sure we protect and support those who are most vulnerable, but at the same time, where possible, we need to start now to build capacity. Nianti says it is important to empower those who can feed themselves. She does, however, acknowledge the primary need to provide food to some 8.3 million people suffering from acute hunger. She says aid also must be given to millions of people who have no access to safe drinking water. and sanitation or to medical care she says it is crucial to provide protection and psychosocial treatment to vulnerable people who are victims of violence human rights violations and gender based sexual violence including rape 
While the emergency needs remain a priority, she says donors also should invest in development projects in relatively stable areas of South Sudan, which could benefit from such support. We're talking about a humanitarian operation that will be structured in a way to increase the dignity that the people of South Sudan deserve. And that dignity will come with empowerment. It will come with us doing things differently, looking across humanitarian development and peace. Humanitarian response is necessary now to save lives. A development response is necessary to preserve the future. Humanitarian coordinator Nianti says investing in development in South Sudan and shoring up people's ability to become self-sufficient will loosen the country's dependency on international aid. She says the benefits of helping people to help themselves are undeniable. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In other news, Afghanistan's ruling Taliban have announced a ban on the poppy harvest, even as farmers in some parts of the country began extracting the opium from the plant that is needed for making heroin. The order Sunday warns farmers that their crops will be burned and they can be jailed if they proceed with the harvest. In desperately poor Afghanistan, the ban on poppy production will further impoverish its poorest citizens at a time when the country is in economic freefall. The ban is reminiscent of the Taliban's previous rule in late 1990s when the religion-driven movement outlawed poppy production. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedofo in Washington. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has declared victory in Sunday's national elections. He is claiming a mandate for a fourth term as the partial vote count gives a strong lead for his right-wing party. Prior to the vote, opposition leader Peter Marquise said he was hopeful the election will change the course of Hungarian history and frame the vote as a choice between East and West. There is no democracy in Hungary. There's no free and fair elections, regardless of the results. There's a huge significance of this election, not only for Hungary. Right-wing populism, or populism in general, together with corruption, absolutely neglecting democratic democratic rule, switching off checks and balances, uh, suppressing and pretty much denying the freedom of the press, independence of the judiciary. This is all characteristics of Orban Victor's rule. Now, when we are fighting for democracy, we are fighting for decency, we are fighting for the independence of the judiciary, rule of law in Hungary, market economy, free enterprises, not for democracy, of course, we are fighting for the whole world. We want to show that this model, what Orban has pioneered, what Orban has introduced here in Hungary, is not acceptable for any decent, honest man. Although there is no democracy in Hungary, all the rules have been set so that Orban Viktor will keep its power forever and keep stealing public money forever. We don't acknowledge this election to be free and fair at all. That's Hungarian opposition leader Peter Markizé. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 1935 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. Hey, sports fan. 
fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on the Voice of America. We are always glad to have our listeners throughout Africa tuning in to our newscast covering Africa News. Tune in on the top of each hour 24-7. VOA is your trusted source of news and information. international edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com until next time i am chine rofo in washington wishing you a wonderful day Editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The Taliban have barred private television stations in Afghanistan from airing Voice of America, British Broadcasting Corporation, and German Deutsche Welle news programs. VOA denounced the Taliban for taking its programs off the air. In a statement, acting VOA director Yolanda Lopez said, We ask the Taliban to reconsider this troubling and unfortunate decision. The content restrictions that the Taliban are attempting to impose are antithetical to freedom of expression, that the people of of Afghanistan deserve. VOA produces a half-hour news bulletin in Pashto and Dari, the two main languages spoken in Afghanistan, five days a week for its Afghan partners, Tolo News and Shamsha TV. VOA remains committed to broadcasting the truth, said Lopez. Our commitment to providing factual information to the people of Afghanistan is one that the Voice of America will continue on television, radio, and the Internet on www.pashtovoa.com and www.darivoa.com, as well as on social media. The head of languages at BBC World Service, Tari Kafala, called on the Taliban to immediately restore its news bulletins. Such a ban, he said, is a worrying development at a time of uncertainty and turbulence for the people of Afghanistan. This is the latest in a series of moves the Taliban has taken to stifle freedom of expression in Afghanistan since seizing control of the country last August. According to a survey released by Reporters Without Borders in December, at least 40% of Afghan media outlets have disappeared, and more than 80% of women journalists lost their jobs since the Taliban takeover of the country. 
Human Rights Watch researcher Fareshta Abbasi reported in February that Taliban harassment and attacks on journalists outside major urban areas have largely gone unreported, causing media outlets in outlying provinces to self-censor or close altogether. In many provinces, the Taliban have virtually eliminated reporting on a wide range of issues and have driven women journalists out of the profession, she said. State Department spokesperson Ned Price said in a statement, The United States is committed to supporting the right of freedom of expression the world over, especially for journalists and human rights defenders, to operate freely without fear of violence against them. The U.S. is committed to supporting the right of freedom of expression and continues to stand with the Afghan people. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Washington, 